So welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future panel. And first of all, uh, for those of you who don't know, Writers of the Future is a competition that was created in 1983 by um, Owen Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writers and artists to get their chance for get, getting published. And because it was so successful, five years later, the Illustrators of the Future contest started. We're now 38 years later, over 700 winners later, and um, we have with us here our judges and past winners. And I'm gonna first of all let them introduce themselves, and then we'll go into about the uh, uh, how to engage readers in writing. So we'll, basically the first half will be us talking, and then we'll open up for question and answer for the second half. So, Brandon. Hey, I'm Brandon Sanderson. Um, I write primarily epic fantasy. Mm. <laughs> okay. I'm David Farland. I'm the coordinating judge for the contest. I'm a past winner from volume three. I've uh, written about 65 science fiction fantasy novels. I'm also the editor of the annual anthology, uh, which is put out. Looks like this. Every, very soon, yes. I'm Steve Sterling. I publish under S.M. Sterling. I write science fiction. I write fantasy. I write alternate history. I write things which are mashups of all three because I'm lazy. Um, and uh, I'm going to be a judge of the Writers of the Future contest, which is an extremely worthwhile project because getting published if you haven't been published before is a big leap and a step and a hard thing to do. And the more ways there are to do it, the better. I'm Eric James Stone. Uh, I write uh, science fiction and fantasy. I've had a bunch of short stories published. My first publication was in Writers of the Future, and I won second place in my quarter and got this trophy. <laughs> and I am Darcy Stone. We have the same last name. That's because we are married. And I entered Writers of the Future, and I had to one-up my husband. I got a first place trophy in my corner. Yeah. Okay, okay, but do we have any uh, fans of Mythic Quest uh, TV show? Yeah, good. Like C.W. Longbottom on that show, I won a Nebula Award. There you go. <laughs> and of course, I couldn't let my husband one up me. So I won the grand prize at Writers of the Future, the Golden Pen Award in volume 34. It's bigger than mine. <laughs> Thank you for your introductions. <laughs> I think they've endangered the plastic tree. <laughs> so the whole thing on, on Writers of the Future is to provide that um, means for the aspiring writer to be, uh, be published. So obviously it involves getting published, which requires writing a story. So one of the topics we want to be able to cover this time is actually how to write so, so as to engage readers. So I'll start here with Brandon with uh, your input on that. How to engage readers. Oh, I can take this off on the panel. Um, so I think that engaging readers involves a lot of different things, and I'm sure we'll get lots of opportunities to talk about this. The first one I thought of when I um, got the panel topic um, was talking about the blend of the familiar and the strange that every story needs. Um, so we go to stories for two basic reasons. One is 
to receive something we've gotten before. We, we usually have read a story or experienced a story that has changed us in some way and made us feel something um, that has engaged us in some way. And so we generally kind of go back and browse through and say, I want something similar to that that did the same thing to me. But at the same time, we don't want to just read that book again. We want to have something new. We want to have this blend. Um, Terry Rossio, the screenplay um, writer, he wrote um, Aladdin and Pirates of the Caribbean with his writing partner. Um, he calls it the strange attractor, right? Something you're attracted to that yet is something different. And I think engaging readers um, on a fundamental level involves giving them what they want in a way different from the previous ways they've gotten it. Great. And Dave, yourself, how to engage readers? I, I think that's a that's a great way to look at it. Um, I I find myself really attracted to a strong sense of wonder, and so for me, um, it's it's very often about creating worlds, characters, images, conflicts that I've never seen before. I, I like to experience something brand new right out of the box. Yes, something old, something borrowed, something blue, something new. Um, how to create, how to engage readers. First, uh, if it's not engaging you while you write it, it's probably not going to engage the reader. Uh, don't write things that bore you. Of course, <clears throat> you may be fascinated by things which will not engage the reader, but it's a first step. It's a necessary but not sufficient condition. Um, we all like stories because we live in stories. We make up stories about our lives. We make up stories about our collective existence. We make up stories about our pasts. Uh, and we like to read other stories which in engage us. And life and story interact, uh, often in ways you wouldn't expect. Um, if any of you have read Bernal Diaz's Conquest of Mexico, uh, which is like a good adventure story all on its own, full of things that you couldn't write in a fiction story because no one would believe them, um, he noted that when the conquistadores came over the pass and looked down on the valley of Mexico and saw the pyramids and the temples and the canals and the hummingbird cloaks. Um, what did they do? They all turned to each other and said, this is like something out of Amadis of Gaul. Amadis of Gaul was a heroic fantasy uh, story that was very popular in 16th century Europe. So it was a bunch of fanboys in armor and they were LARPing. <laughs> Works the other way around too. Some of you may have read a Robert E. Howard uh, Conan story, The Phoenix on the Sword. It's got everything. It's got good magicians. It's got evil magicians. It's got Thoth Ammon, actually. Uh, it's got demons, and it's got an assassination plot where a bunch of people swarm in and try to kill Conan. Um, I read it, and it's a very good story, but it, something was nigglingly familiar about it. And it turns out to be an almost, the fight part of it turns out to be an almost word-for-word redoing of the death of Francisco Pizarro in Lima, in Peru, in the 16th century. It was an intramural quarrel among the Spanish after they'd conquered Peru, and that's where Pizarro bit the dust, uh, even down to the not having the time to lace up the side of his armor and getting a wound there. Uh, on, only Pizarro was in his 70s, and he still killed four men who were trying to kill him. Um, you know, that's another one of those things. Life is stranger than fiction. Fiction has to be credible. Life just happens. So you couldn't put that in. But Howard just read that somewhere and stuck it in the story. Stories interact with each other all the time. That's great. Thank you. Uh, one of the things I'd like to bring up is uh, clarity. Basically, 
make it so that your reader can understand what's going on. Um, if they're confused about a lot of stuff, they, if they don't have an idea of the setting, why this character is doing something, things like that, they, they disengage from the story. So let them know what's going on. Um, and I would say my biggest advice is you either need an idea behind your story that is so naturally engaging that your readers just want to keep thinking about it, or you need a character that is so engaging that your readers just want to spend more time with them. Ideally, try to get both. But if you don't have either, then your story's just not going to make it very far um, through the submission process. So. Thank you. Now, Brandon, you've accomplished engaging readers over the years. <laughs> just a few, just a few. So, but there's another aspect to your engaging readers. You do it with several series concurrently. So a little bit about how you're able to do that, to switch gears, or is it switching gears, to go from fantasy, science fiction, epic fantasy, young adult fantasy, young adult science fiction? Right. This is um, more a function of my writing process than it is um, a deliberate choice to engage readers. I, uh, as a novelist, avoid burnout by letting myself do a lot of different things. Uh, this has turned out to be really important to my process. Back Way back in the day, um, when I was unpublished, one of the ways I was accomplishing breaking in was writing a bunch of different first novels to series, right? I didn't, I didn't think, you know, an editor would buy book two if they rejected book one. And so in, um, it, I wrote 13 book ones, right? Uh, and then I eventually sold one, and by then I'd gotten used to this idea that um, every time I finished a book, I got to do something new. And doing that something new made me engaged and interested and excited. I do think just watching, you know, fans and the way they work, they would probably prefer that I stick to one series. Um, that tends to just be, you know, um, they, they would prefer that, you know, I do one and then finish it and then start another. Uh, but the problem is I, as a writer, would get burned out very quickly. I look forward so much to being able to, I don't know if you guys have this experience, but by the time I'm done with like the fifth or sixth draft of a book, I'm like, I, I never want to see these characters again in my life. Um, and if I pick up and have to write the next book, I think this leads to a lot of writers just being tired of their characters, which is not something I've ever experienced because I always let myself do something different in between. That's a great answer. Dave? Ab absolutely. I, I find myself not only tired of the character, but tired of every single word of the book and the world and all the people who like it. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I mean, no, seriously, uh, you, you, do get, uh, you do get a major burnout. And, you know, they always say that a change is as good as a, a vacation. And so switching over and doing another kind of book or doing a, a different book is, is a lot of fun. That, that helps me avoid burnout really well. Yeah, I've done, um, let's see, science fictional noir detectives, um, paranormal, um, ultimate, a lot of ultimate history because I started out as a historian. I wanted to be a history professor with the leather patches on the elbows of the tweed jacket and that sort of thing. And then I went to university and found out how, what you had to do to actually become a history professor and I decided on something safe like writing fiction. Um, yeah, you just do what, you know, follow your bliss. You tend to write the book you want to read, or at least I do. Um, one thing I've found that virtually all authors have in common is that they've always had 
complex, scripted, colorful daydreams um, from an early age. A lot of other people do, too. I was surprised when I find out that a lot of people don't, but it's a necessary but not sufficient condition. So you're basically writing down your daydreams in a more structured fashion. And if you're a compulsive daydreamer, you're never going to lack for material that will interest you. Getting the publisher interested, that's another matter. <laughs> Eric. Uh, well, I've mostly done short fiction. I have had one novel published. I'm having trouble writing a sequel to that, so I've just been doing more short fiction. So I, I don't know that I can really answer that question. Okay. Um, I'm going to take it a slightly different direction, and that is when I submitted my story to Writers of the Future, I was actually nervous because it wasn't a fantasy story, and it didn't involve spaceships or time travel, so I wasn't sure if it was science fiction. It was a, a medical thriller, and uh, my husband convinced me I should go ahead and submit it, and it won first place, so don't limit yourself. Um, it does need to be speculative fiction, like they don't want poetry or a traditional Western, um, but speculative fiction covers a really wide array, and they do allow anywhere between, what, what's the word limit? 17,000. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the stories that, that make it in are flash fiction. I mean, they're really tiny. And then other stories, like mine was right there on the edge with around 17,000. So there's a lot you can do within that uh, limit. Okay. Question, how many of you are actually familiar with the Writers of the Future contest? Good. And how many of you submitted? All right, so just as a quick overview of this, the Writers of the Future contest is free to enter. It's open to amateur writers. The rules are actually in the back of the book and it's also on the website, writersofthefuture.com. So you can't have published more than three short stories or a novel. And if you're an illustrator, um, similarly, you can't have been uh, professionally published. And it says how many uh, uh, sales you can have with uh, pro rates, which currently right now I think is uh, six cents a word. I believe it is. And it's open to everybody. We have entries from over 175 countries around the world, and um, winners are from likewise everywhere. And the thing about the Rise of Future contest is that the stories are judged blinded, blindly by the uh, judges. All they see is a number assigned to the story. So they have no idea if you're male, female, what nationality, anything about you. It's just the quality of the story. So in essence, the 12 stories that are published each year are the best new talent as judged by your favorite authors. And that's what makes it very, very special and why it remains the best-selling science fiction anthology out there each year. And each year it wins multiple um, book awards. So with that, the uh, year goes from October 1st to December 30th. So the end of year 38 um, happens the end of September. And it's um, you can still get your entries in if you haven't. And again, it's free to enter. and. If you get into a thing of like, well, it's got to be perfect the first time, it's, you definitely submit your best work, but you can keep on submitting. You know, we've had uh, one winner has submitted 47 times before he finally won. That's definitely an extreme, but uh, you can keep on submitting, and as you improve, you start getting honorable mentions, and, and then silver honorable mentions, and then finalists as you move on up, and you start getting critiques from uh, the judges as well when they uh, see the stories. And so, if you're not a writer, um, it's also a great book to get just as a reader. There's a lot of really interesting, unique stories in there. So it's, if you like short stories, you don't want to commit to one of Brandon's five million page epic <laughs> series. <laughs> you know, you can commit to a 10 page Writers of the Future story. 
Eric and Darcy are in my writing group, so uh, <laughs> they can get away with they that. get away with quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, on the subject of um, engagement, it obviously comes up with uh, how to start a story. So, um, Brandon, what's been a like some? I don't want to say just like what's the um, you know you need writing prompts, but what inspires you to be able to to write a story? So it's interesting. Beginnings, I feel like new authors stress beginnings a ton because they've heard a lot of advice how important your beginning is. And that advice is true, but I usually throw away my beginning after I write my book and write a new one. Um, It's the most often revised or deleted part of a book for me uh, because in a first draft, getting that book written is more important than spending a lot of time deciding where it should begin. And I find that the longer I go as a writer, the more it, easy it is for me to just throw away a chapter yeah. Yeah. and replace it with something else. Um, and I, I would do this on, a, I, I'd say, around two out of three books that I write, the first chapter is significantly different in the published version. And so, yeah, you do need to hook readers. That You do need to practice how to do a good first few pages. I mean, that is, that is vital to uh, attracting a reader. And we, we can talk about that. But I do want to point out that you should write your story first um, if you're having trouble with that first page. Because a lot of times you'll get to the end and you'll know what promises you really need to make. And then you can make them at that beginning. That's great. Dave? Yeah. Absolutely. And one thing that a lot of authors kind of don't really think about when they're new is that the beginning of your story isn't the first line. The beginning of your story is your title. Uh, I can very often look at, you know, maybe 40 stories that are going to be in my finalist pile. And almost always, if it's got a great title, then, uh, then it's probably going to place really well. The author took some time to think about it. So, you know, when you start your story, the, the title itself very often makes promises to the readers. And, and so you want to choose that carefully. And then we start talking about first lines and hooks. How are you going to engage the reader from the very first line? How are you going to promise them a really cool story in a few words and get them reading? Because that, that little first line that you give um, actually causes a release of dopamine into the brain, which is the same drug that uh, uh, hunting dogs get when they're on the trail of a rabbit. And so for about two minutes, you've got them hooked. They'll keep on reading. And if you can then start engaging them in other ways, uh, they'll just keep on reading. It was a dark and stormy night. (laughs) That was actually pretty good when they came up with it. That's the best line ever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, uh, I agree. Write the whole story and then go back and see about your beginning. Sometimes you use a scene as a tab to sort of like pull the narrative into the spools and sprockets and get it going, which is a metaphor that shows how old I am. Um, so, you know, don't worry about it when you're doing your first draft. You know, you've got to like intrigue the reader, especially if you're writing a um, short story. Um, you know, novels give you a little more uh, room to w- wiggle around with. Right now I'm, I'm just about 15,000 words into a novel and I'm debating with myself which of the chapters I've written is gonna go first. So, you know, you've got, more, you've got more leverage there. Like, he'd been dead half an hour before he noticed. 
you know, that's definitely gonna get them to read the second sentence, and I just came up with that. <laughs> so. Um, I worked for uh, five years as an assistant editor for an online magazine, so I read a lot of slush there, and basically, when it comes to starting a story, I decided the most important thing is to start with an interesting character doing interesting things. Now, there's a wide variety about what makes a character interesting and what makes a, uh, uh, what they're doing interesting, but it's very rare for a story to start off with a boring character doing boring things. Yes, don't start with a character the waking up in the morning and looking in the mirror to describe what they look like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, so yeah, the interesting character doing interesting things. That's that's my key to beginnings. Well, and I think I've heard you say a lot, it is so important to stick the landing. Um, yeah, uh, uh, having read a lot of Slush, the thing I hated worse than stories with a terrible beginning was stories that had a great beginning and a good middle and then failed to stick the landing. Because the stories with a terrible beginning, I could stop reading right at the beginning and move on to something else. But if you, if you don't nail the landing, even if your beginning was great, just kind of leaves a bad taste in the reader's mouth and you're not going to get the sale. Great. Now, from a different perspective on engaging readers, we're here at a fan convention. So the value of fan conventions or the value of engaging the readers themselves as fans to your success, Brandon? Um, I would say that it was foundational to my career, um, but I was the first generation of writers that grew up internet savvy um, and learned to engage readers in social media and things like that. Um, certainly conventions were, were very relevant, but um, I mean, my career rose up alongside uh, when I, you know, when I was breaking in, Facebook was just starting, Twitter was just starting, and Comic-Cons were actually just kind of growing as well. And this generation became the generation where you could engage with the reader as writers in, I think, a really interesting direct way. It's this kind of catch-22, though, because uh, any of these things, to get attention, you kind of already need to have a reason for them to pay attention to you. But if you have a reason for them to pay attention to you, then they, um, you know, you don't need to work as hard to get the, it, it, it is this weird thing. Uh, one thing that was really helpful for me actually in that regard was Dave taking me on tour. Um, when I first broke in, um, Dave would take me um, on book tour and he basically said, hey, come along with me on tour, I'll show you the ropes and then you can do readings for my fans when they show up. And it was, it was really nice. Panels are good for that same reason. Um, I, when I was a brand new author, um, my publicist or just, you know, local conventions putting me on a panel full of great writers that, you know, a room of people may not come to see you on your own, um, even individually, any of us, but they might come to say, hey, look at all of these writers all giving advice. Um, and it just becomes an excellent opportunity to kind of... Um, to, to show that you know what you're talking about and hopefully get readers engaged and interested in trying out your stories. Great. Dave? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to, to gain a fandom. And, and I think with my first book, um, I got 
I got great cover quotes, I guess is the easy way to put it. Um, I, I got great cover quotes from Publishers Weekly and from uh, from Orson Scott Card and in his Books to Look For section and the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction and those types of things. And that, that really helped my book shoot up to, um, well, my, my first book hit up at number four or five, stayed on the bestseller list for five months. Uh, second book hit up to number one on the science fiction bestseller list. Um, and the, the point of it was is that that was the old-fashioned way of doing it, okay? Nowadays, with social media, there are so many other ways to engage fans and to talk to them directly. You know, for, for about $25, you can get about a million impressions on Facebook. Uh, so you don't, take, you don't need a whole lot of money to get some advertising. Doesn't necessarily mean you'll convert that many fans, okay? But at least they'll be possibly aware of your name and, and maybe take an interest in you. It was really interesting, sorry to jump in, but when we uh, went on tour, you remember our third tour together? So the first one, no one showed up for me, obviously. I had one book out, right? By the third one, um, Dave was still a bestseller, uh, still, still hitting the times list, and I had never hit the times list. Um, and yet, I started having a crowd show up at my readings um, and things, and Dave was like, what is going on? <laughs> I'm like, well, I actually am using social media and the internet. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then it was kind of fun because Dave's like, all right, you gotta show me how to do this. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, with Brandon, when we went out on tour, what we did was we, we went out and, uh, you know, Brandon was a brand new author and people come up and ask me about my book. I'd say, well, you know, I'm a New York Times bestseller. I don't need your sale, but this guy right here is fantastic. You've got to take a look at his book. And we, I, you know, talked them into buying his book. And, and so when we started seeing all those fans, I wasn't really too surprised. Uh, I, was, I, was, I was delighted, I guess, to see that many people coming in. Yeah, did, did you say your first book got number four on the... On the list? Number four on the science fiction bestseller list, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to have to kill you now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I wrote my first book a long time ago on a manual typewriter. That was back when cut and paste meant cut and paste. Um, I, I used my first advance to buy a, a really cool modern one that had a single line of display. Um, yeah, so I, I, I approached it the traditional way. Um, getting in contact with the fans meant going to conventions or or some other ways. I did my first signing sitting next to Gene Wolfe. Um, I had four people buy my, bring up my book to be signed. Two of them were blood relations. Um, <laughs> his line went out of the building and around the block. But I got to you know, sit there and watch him interact with his fans, which was useful, and also he was very nice to me. So, you know, depends on the way you get to do it. I do use social media and uh, Facebook. I don't like Twitter because I lose my temper easily. <laughs> It's not a good place for people to lose their tempers easily. <laughs> um, but uh, Facebook, I've, I've I found very useful. You know, got an S.M. Sterling Appreciation Society, and you know, it had me as its first member. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's put me in contact with a lot of fans. You get a lot of feedback. It's also very useful for doing research, because if you've got a bunch of fans interacting with you, there's always going to be someone who knows something about something you don't. Um, or you can find people with life experiences who are different from yours, you know, so you can ask them, am I, am I being like completely uh, off kilter about group X or life experience Y? And I've, that's proven very useful for me too. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed meeting fans at conventions, interacting with them on social media. It's, it's always nice to hear when somebody likes what I've written. 
Yeah, kind of going back to Brandon's opening comment about how you want to be strange yet familiar. I think it's hard to find something that you know your fans want, but give it a new and unique twist. Because, you know, you're like, I love vampire romances. Well, don't just write another imitation Twilight. I guarantee there's 500 already saturating the market. Or I love werewolves. I'm going to, you know, imitate this other werewolf novel that I love. Um, you've got to find some way to please your fans, but if you're going to stand above the crowd, you've got to have something about you that makes you different and unique. Great. Now we're going to be opening up uh, for questions. We've got a microphone in the, in the middle, so if anyone wants to start queuing up there for asking questions, uh, this, this panel is also being recorded to be on the Writers of the Future podcast. If you've not listened to it yet, it's on pretty much every platform. It's also syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, and... Um, we're listening to about 100 different countries around the world. Each episode gets about a million listens right now. So it's been very, very successful. And I know this is going to be a very successful podcast when it gets aired. So go ahead. You're, just address, say your name. And then if you have addressed it to a certain person, go ahead and do that. Um, hi, my name is Shelby. Uh, and this is for all of you. Um, <clears throat> um, usually it's like one scene that I'm like, oh, this would be amazing. And it's got this awesome character. But then once I write out that scene, I struggle to keep it going. And I'm from the, your nods, I'm assuming you've had something similar. So what do you do to keep that same momentum and that same type of like love you had at that scene that you wanted to keep it going? So how do you do that? You can't love everything you write as much as the stuff that comes to you in a flash of blinding inspiration. Um, my most successful series, I had a first image in my head of a red-haired woman sitting by a campfire with a traveler wagon in the background. And then I didn't know who she was, and I didn't know what book this was going to be, and I sort of built it up around that. Um, but that scene came to me very vividly, and I just wrote it out. And the, the entire 15-book series eventually, eventually came from that. But you've got to be able to... You've got to be able to do the bits in between where the inspiration fairy sprinkles you with dust. You've got to be able to do consciously... Uh, as well as what you do uh, unconsciously when you get the, the flash. And that's just a matter of working at it. Yeah, um, you know, I was doing a thing where I was writing every day uh, just to keep in the habit, and I wrote about this, this one guy who couldn't be remembered. And I wrote this scene with him, and it was a cool scene, and I didn't really have anything else with it. But I ran that scene through a couple of my writing groups, and they were like, oh, you've got to write this novel. And I'm like, okay. So then I just sat down and figured out, okay, what would this character, you know, what's, what's this character like? What's the, the world that this character's in? What would this character be doing? What is some interesting event that this character could be involved in? And so I wrote an outline for a novel. Uh, and that ended up being my first and so far only published novel. But it took work to, to figure out how that character interacted with the world and how that could be an interesting thing for a full novel. And then I wrote the outline and then wrote the book. Okay, great. Now we've got a lot of people in line. So what we'll do is if you can direct it to one person, that way everybody's yeah, a chance. Farland. We only have 15 minutes left. <clears throat> okay. David Farland, first of all, I want to say I noticed you weren't here for like three years. I was worried about you. <laughs> I, I didn't know you were sick. 
Yeah, well, I, I, uh, I, and I had a little minor surgery and got sepsis one year, and then the following year I had a heart attack and was recovering from that. And, you know, it's just one thing after another. Yeah, last, last thing. Um, hey, and also about the Ravenspell book series. I read three of them, but the third one ended on the cliffhanger. When's the fourth one going to be out, and are, is there going to be a movie or TV series? Well, we'll see about the TV series or something like that. I've, I've had a little bit of interest in that, um, but I do have more books in that series. I've got uh, uh, about three or four of them that I'm planning, and so I'd like to, I want to try to make sure that I have it when I come back next year. So we'll, okay. we'll go from there. We'll see a fourth Rune Lords. Oh, yeah. Yep, definitely. Raven's Tales. Tales is the next book in the series, and uh, I'm, I'm working hard on that one. Okay, yes, next. I, I guess the question goes out to anybody who wants to answer, maybe Brandon, because you've done these huge novels, but I've, I've written a novel, and it's about 500 pages, and I'm back in the editing process, and I have to say I'm really bogged down by the editing process, and I'm, I, I don't know how to motivate myself to keep going. Um, I kind of want to just give up on the whole thing. Can you address like what you did before you got published, before you had people like, you know, pushing you to get it done? And and maybe like, did you think about going to, to write short stories instead? So I never thought about going to write short stories. I read novels and so I write novels. Basically, I feel strongly that the mediums that you enjoy as a reader are the mediums that you're going to, your, your voice is going to be strongest in. Um, and since I, um, I discovered short fiction more after I got published than before, which is uh, kind of backward for a lot of people. I would say that during those early years, there's a couple key things. Number one, learn what motivates you. Everybody works differently. Um, some people respond better to the carrot. Some people respond better to the stick. Adulting in your life is about learning what makes you do the things you want to have done. And you probably have this um, structure in other parts of your life, like a job or something. And if that's what motivates you, having that structure, then make yourself accountable on your book to people in a similar way. Do a writer's group or have some readers you've promised it to or you know, get some accountability with um, family members who are like, have you done your revisions for this week? If so, then we'll do this or things like that. Um, I find goal-focused revision to be really key because I don't like revision. I like writing the new story. But if I come up and say, here are the things I'm going to try to fix in this given novel, in this given draft, and I have to focus only on those, that lets me um, not get bogged down in the revision. And you can always do another revision later to fix some of these smaller things. So focus on the big things. Um, give yourself accountability in some way. And then um, the third one would be to, um, to give yourself space between revisions. Don't make yourself do a revision when you're too close to the book. I usually will do a second draft right after I finish the first, just to polish it, make it readable. Um, and then I'll give it to some people to read and I won't come back for as many months as I can spend. Uh, six months is ideal. Usually it's more like two or three for me these days. That gives you a fresh approach on it. You're excited by it again. Thank you. Great. Uh, my name is Sean, and I guess uh, to Brandon, since you have all these different stories, uh, how do you store all those ideas? Um, I use a uh, program called WikidPad, which is an open source wiki software. Um, and it's just been very useful for organizing my thoughts and my worlds and all of these things. All right, thank you. 
My name is Jake Sandage, uh, and I'm addressing this question to Brandon Sanderson. So when I'm when I'm writing, I find that when I'm writing a scene, I tend to uh, stretch it out a little bit too long, and it tends to end up as a, a more of a ramble than a completed scene. How do you how do you decide when it's best to transition to a different scene, and uh, how do you uh, keep the readers interest in that that right. uh, okay transition. three things for you also uh in late out early good piece of screenwriting advice i got which is generally try to start your scene as close to the interesting bits as possible and get out of it as soon after the interesting bits as possible just a good rule of thumb to have in mind um that usually you can start a little later than you think uh, you do want to have establishment you do want to um you know lead out of a scene as well. But, you know, in late, out early, just, uh, just a good thing to keep in mind. Um, practice revision. Uh, a lot of writers, I'd say most writers I know other than Eric, overwrite on first draft and then need to trim on later drafts. This includes me. I look to cut 10 to 15% of every book that I write. Um, and learning to do that without taking out scenes, just taking out uh, repeated lines, uh, places where you ramble, this sort of stuff, uh, very, very useful for you. Um, and third, as you kind of transition from newer writer to journeyman writer, one of the things you'll be looking to do is to create a mini book in every chapter. Or sometimes it's in a sequence of chapters, but the idea is that they'll have a beginning, middle, and end. They'll have rising action. You'll have things you want to accomplish in this chapter, and then you will um, uh, kind of seed at the end where it's going to go from there to build this momentum for a reader. And so usually that means introduce a conflict for this given chapter that's going to move the story in some way. Deal with that conflict and have some sort of interesting resolution of it, unexpected in some way. Um, and then as a, a little denouement of the character just responding to whatever is happening there and then a seed for where it's going next and you will that is the bread and butter of stories you'll be doing that cycle all the way through your book uh, beginning to end until you're done yeah, and I just want to say like my winning story I literally cut the word count by 50% and it was a better story that way so don't be scared to just go through with a razor and chop it out and don't be afraid to overwrite in your first draft oh, yeah. it's okay because yeah. you don't know yet what you're going to keep so yeah, and remember that uh, describing something more than once doesn't make it more vivid, it makes it blurred. So just pick the best. Yeah, that's really good advice. The, yeah. the, best, the best descriptions are two, one, three lines that are just really pop off the page and then leave it alone. Yeah, great. Yeah. Good, okay, next. My name is Walker and I'm writing a fantasy novel I have a problem with my world building where I'll start to be like, no, no, that feels too much like I'm copying Tolkien or R.R. Martin. Do you have any advice to make me more comfortable with that or to not veer so much that I feel like I'm copying? Yeah, uh, okay, to a certain extent, copying is inevitable. Um, all, all fiction is in conversation with all the other fiction that you've ever read. Secondly, there's an old uh, saying in the field that world building is good occupational therapy for lunatics who think they're God. Um, you're, you're never going to be able to build a world as real and vivid as the real world. So one good way to do things is to look at the real world. Read uh, like history a lot, and you can get stuff from there that you wouldn't dare to make up. 
Uh, history just has to exist. Fiction has to be credible. But if you go and study the real world a lot, then you'll get a lot of ideas for your world building. Okay, let's keep on moving because we got several people. We've got seven minutes left. Um, my question is for Eric Stone because you mentioned you write a lot of short stories. Do you know how to get writer, readers like emotionally invested? Because I think sometimes I struggle with building that emotion because you don't have like a lot of space to build up to it. It's a it's a tough thing, but um, there there are certain things that tend to make people like other people uh, kind of right off the bat. Uh, one's a sense of humor. Um, or you know some cool attitude or or something, um, and so to to try and engage the the reader quickly with your character, you can try something like that. Uh, you know, and putting somebody in peril, somebody who's nice in peril, people identify with that and and will go along with the character. All right, thank you. Great. Next, how do you balance? Um kind of information that you give your reader with mystery to maintain that engagement? Because I've had drafts where the first one has way too much information and they're like, there's no mystery. I have no reason to stick with it. And then the next draft, I'm like, hey, here's here's the new draft. And they're like, this is beautiful prose. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> so how do you strike that balance to both give information and maintain something to, to lead the reader along and make them keep going? Dave? I think that uh, what I like to do is I like to say, how little can I describe? And and say, you know, if I've, if I've got a description, uh, like Brandon was saying earlier, you know, the best descriptions are, are two or three sentences, and it goes six sentences, I know I'm over-describing. I don't want to describe something that's, you know, uh, happened before or anything like that. And so I'm always looking for ways to create mystery. That's my personal hang up. Other people, I think, uh, are the other way. They, they come up with mysteries all the time and then they fail to describe them and describe the solutions well. But, but the basic answer is always make sure that when you describe something that it leads the reader to another question, okay? So that you're keeping that mystery going uh, all the time in your work, okay? Remember I talked about dopamine lasting for one or two minutes? You've got to have a new mystery every one or two minutes. Okay, great. Next. Okay, so the kind of things I write are mainly fan fiction, but I do want to get into writing my own original stories. Um, except the first idea I've ever had for something original, it was based off of a fan fiction idea I had where I, where everyone became so out of character that I just changed the names and called it original. But... How, how do I know that the changes I have are enough, and how do I get go from fan fiction to actual fiction? <laughs> a lot of people start out with fan fiction. I essentially did. I was writing stuff for my own amusement, and it was fan fiction. It's just something you sort of develop out of. I mean, you can tell reliably if they sue you <laughs> <laughs> that you haven't, you know, that you haven't moved out of it, moved out of the the stuff that originally inspired you. But um, I would say just work it in your head until it's yours. Um, I've heard people who write fan fiction say that one of the reasons they enjoy fan fiction is some of the work is already done, right? Um, generally, the character work is already done. Uh, this makes it a lot easier um, if you are borrowing characters because uh, the way that we look at things, um, if you change genre dramatically, 
it is very hard to see those characters. Um, and so if the fanfic you're writing is of a fantasy series and you can set that in a science fiction and make the world building all your own, I don't think you'll have any worries that people are going to be like, oh, this is too much like this other thing. Because then you've got your familiar and your strange and it's, it's going to click. If, if Fifty Shades, you know, didn't get sued and she said she barely filed serial numbers off for that. I haven't read them, but uh, a lot of people like these are very close. Then I think that changing the genre is going to just be enough. Thank you. Great. Next. I'm not sure who to direct this to, but how would you go about creating a writer group or where would you look to join one? So I can talk about this. I really like writers groups. Um, be aware that they aren't for everyone. There are some writers, these tend to be writers who discovery write a lot um, and who uh, submit their writing while they're working on the story. If you're a discovery writer easily influenced by feedback and your story isn't done, a writer's group can just take and seize control of your story and it'll turn out terrible. Um, and they're not for everyone. I really like them because of that accountability, the camaraderie, writing is so, um, so solitary, and because I really like having an early reader group look at my book and tell me what's going right and going wrong. Um, you can, your best ways to find them locally are com writing conferences, uh, focus more on writing than a comic con. So if you live in this area, Writers for Young Readers is the premier uh, convention. Um, uh, I would, I would look at that even if your writing uh, isn't strictly YA, if it, you know, um, a lot of sci-fi fantasy is just over the line into adult. Um, Storymakers is really solid, and if you take the right workshops at those that you kind of have to usually pay a little extra to get into, and start paying attention to people who maybe um, are asking questions that are really interesting, um, and start, you know, going with a group of people, make friends at some of these writer-focused conferences. Um, the, the, the cheaper ones like LTUE are also still very good for this um, and whatnot. Find people who are asking interesting questions. Find, get into the workshop sessions where you're all reading each other's writing. Find the people whose writing appeals to you and whose feedback is good. It takes work it ta it, over time. But um, I found all of my writers groups doing things like that and going to university classes and finding, looking for that. Who gives the good feedback? Whose writing is really good and I admire? Uh, my One of my current writing groups, I built out of Dave's class when I took it from him 20 years ago. Yeah, I just got the uh, high sign that we're, we're done. But thank you very much for attending. Uh, we also have, on risethefuture.com, we also have a forum there. If you're interested, we've got cards up here on how to enter the Rise of the Future contest. And um, thank you very much for attending. Yeah, thank you.